The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by IBM. Big data at the speed of business. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. It's great to be back in the studio again. Uh, Before we get started, I want to take a moment to thank the wonderful folks who organized the FSC conference in Australia and everyone who turned out to meet me. Thank you for your warm reception. In just a few moments, physician and former Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist will be joining us. There are few leaders more qualified to weigh in on the impact of the Affordable Care Act eight months into the program, and also to shed light on the current Ebola virus outbreak and where we stand relative to the threat of this and other contagions. So hang on to your hats. We're in for a full hour of truth-telling. But before Mr. Frisch joins us, as is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about his background. William Harrison Frist was born in Nashville, Tennessee. His father was a well-respected physician who founded the healthcare organization, which became the Hospital Corporation of America. Frist is a graduate of Princeton University, where he specialized in healthcare policy. In 1972, he took an internship position under Congressman Joe E. Levins, who uh, convinced the young Frist to pursue a career outside of politics first. So Frist went on to Harvard Medical School, where he graduated with honors in 78 and became a resident cardiovascular uh, surgeon at um, um, Massachusetts General. Boy, I had trouble reading this a little bit. Uh, I I think it's all that jet lag (laughs) getting to me. From 85 to 86, Frist served as a chief resident in cardiac transplant surgery at Stanford University Hospital, later becoming a faculty member at Vanderbilt University and staff surgeon at the Nashville Veterans Hospital. He was responsible for founding the Vanderbilt Transplant Center. Throughout his medical career, Frist served on a variety of policy committees, including the Governor's Medicaid Task Force and Republican National Committee's Health Care Coalition. Then in 1994, he threw his hat in the ring for Senator of Tennessee, a race he won and which delivered the first physician to our Senate since 1938. Frist served two terms, including as Senate Majority Leader. You'll also recall that uh, when two police officers were shot in our nation's capital in 98, Bill Frist was there to administer critical medical care. Uh, He has worked tirelessly for organizations such as the One Campaign in 2008, which made global health and poverty a foreign policy priority, and Hope Through Healing Hands, which uses health care as a means of establishing peace in volatile nations. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report a leader who would rather lead by example than by coercion or force, Mr. Bill Frist. Welcome to the program, Mr. Frist. Hey, Rebecca. Great to be with you today. I appreciate it. Uh, if, if it's it's wonderful to have you. First of all, let me say that. And uh, uh, I, you know, I really wanted to talk to a physician about this latest outbreak of Ebola in West Africa because, there's, as you know, uh, and no one knows better than you, uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, junk science that's floating around. So now, as I understand it, this outbreak began at the end of last year in Guinea, and uh, the extent of the problem was not really known until this March when it began spreading to. Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Nigeria. And to me, that feels like a, an awfully long time for a deadly virus to be on the move. You know, the Ebola virus is a virus that is deadly in the sense that we have no treatment for it, no known treatment. There's no way to reverse it. Uh, it's a highly infectious uh, virus, and therefore it has the, the really worst of, of, of both worlds, something that is resistant to treatment, but also can be transmitted in a very easy way from, from person to person. When 
you look back at, at viruses like this that, that emerge, if you don't stop them, if you don't cap them, bad things can happen. And we saw that with HIV AIDS up through the 1980s. When, when I was a resident, you mentioned Mass General Hospital, when I was there in 1981, the HIV AIDS virus did not exist in the United States. It didn't exist. came over by an airplane, and then we saw around the world 500 people get it, and then 1,000, and 5,000, and 10,000, and 100,000, and a million, and 23 million people got it. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not what's going to happen here. Uh, this will eventually burn itself out, but it does show the importance of continued surveillance global education on what you can do to stop it, and it's basically quarantine to stop the person-to-person. Uh, so a deadly virus, one that we don't fully know. We know you know, over a 1,000 people um, uh, have, have died from it uh, since that period of time, and that could go on up to several thousand people. There's been a huge stimulation in science. You know, why don't we have a cure? Why don't we? We know that we can stop HIV-AIDS. We can stop it and reverse the overall incidence, we cannot yet do that with Ebola. So a lot of research is underway, a lot of very exciting research, and that needs to be continued. Mm -hmm. Now, Ebola is a a viral fever, and it's similar uh, in some ways to dengue fever or yellow fever, and it's transmitted by coming into contact with bodily fluids. Is that right? That's correct. Mm -hmm. And the thing about it, the bodily fluids can be a... a, a, um, cough, or it could be uh, uh, liquid fluids. It could be a, a very gentle cough at just about two or three feet. Um, uh, so it's pretty it's pretty infectious itself. But what that means is if you suspect someone with Ebola and you can separate them from uh, for a period of time from other human beings, you can stop the virus and the spread of the virus itself. And so that's one of the big challenges today that, that at least I'm involved with is what are the criteria for making the diagnosis? Because a lot of the presentation uh, symptoms are like a viral disease with aching joints or an upper respiratory disease, uh, fairly low-grade fevers, but you don't want to treat everybody as if they have Ebola. And that's one of the challenges we have today is making that diagnosis rapidly and quickly. And right now, on the ground in Africa, there really is no quick, easy test to test for Ebola. So another great area for research, the kind of research that our own CDC Centers for Disease uh, is studying very, very hard, and our taxpayers are investing that in a, in a very aggressive way, and I think that's quite appropriate. It's all, all of this is just a plane ride away. The whole point is that there's somebody on Ebola who just had an upper respiratory illness, came out of the region, and they came to... New York City, and they sat in the airport or near Kennedy, and then after a few minutes, it would be very clear that they would infect other people, and since you don't have a cure for it, you just don't want that sort of thing to happen. Well, what you're saying really rings home to me. I I just came back from a trip in Australia, and on my way there, uh, I caught some kind of flu, and uh, I wound up in the hotel room. I I was very, very ill. And uh, and I had all the symptoms of Ebola, which is horrible to happen at the same time the Ebola outbreak is. Um, but, you know, I, I, I didn't panic, but maybe there was a small part of me that panicked, to, to be honest with you. But but no, uh, because I had muscle aches and fever and everything else, and I, I probably Ebola wasn't even registering in my mind except for, you know, the recent press on it. No, of course it wasn't. This whole, you know, stomach pain, little sore throat, muscle aches, headache, high, high fever. I, I think um, there's a lot more that we can do, uh, and by we, the world community, uh, to help out. And it's not just money. A lot of it is education of what Ebola is, what can be done, even even simple things such as um, the way people are buried um, and the, the culture we have around death. Mm-hmm. It's very important to educate various people, and it varies from country to country, of how you handle somebody who has, for example, died from Ebola. So anyway, I think I think the typical American has nothing to worry about, obviously, in listening to us. I think what it does mean, because these are the sort of outbreaks that, that can cause panic, almost like terror, because you're defenseless if you get it. There's yeah, that's right. 
That's right. So you just you just want to be calm uh, calm about it, and uh, and you know just go consult a physician who can pretty easily uh, test for these things. Uh, now we're going to have to take a, a a short break, but uh, when we come back, I'd like to talk about some of these unapproved vaccines that we're now shipping to Africa to control the contagion. You're listening to the Costa Report. No matter what business you're in, what happens in Washington can make the difference between business success or failure. That's why understanding where government is headed is so important in today's competitive business environment. But where can you find experts who know firsthand the inner workings of our nation's capital? The American Program Bureau is your leading source for speakers whose experience offer unique insights into where U.S. policy is headed. Speakers like Seth Harris, former acting U.S. Secretary of Labor, Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff, and General Carl Eikenberry, former U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan. For your next meeting or conference, contact the American Program Bureau at apbspeakers.com or 617-614-1600. That's apbspeakers.com. The American Program Bureau, making history one speech at a time. Did you know that every day we create 2.5 quintillion bytes of data and that 90% of the data in the world today has been created in the last two years alone? This data comes from everywhere and it affects everyone. This data is big data. Big data is all data and it's more than simply a matter of size. Big data represents an opportunity to uncover new insights, make your business more agile, and answer questions that were previously beyond your reach. IBM's big data platform uses sophisticated technologies and patented advanced analytics designed to complement your existing information infrastructure. The IBM big data platform allows you to get started quickly today and expand to address more complex problems tomorrow. It doesn't matter where you start, it matters that you start. Find out how IBM can help you turn big data into a competitive advantage by visiting ibm.com slash big data today. <coughs> Mommy, I don't feel good. I know, sweetheart. I'm going to talk to a nurse. Hello. Hi, I need to speak to a nurse, Welcome right? Welcome to Community Hospital Health Line. Away. Please press 1 now. Mm. To pay your bill by phone. Oh, come on. A nurse. Perfect. There are no longer nurses at this location due to profit-driven staff cutbacks. Press 5 now to take a survey rating our excellent billing services. <coughs> Come on, honey. We're going to the hospital. Welcome to America's corporate healthcare system. When hospitals cut essential staff, spend billions on impersonal technology, and put their profits ahead of your care, you and your loved ones suffer. Tell us how corporate healthcare and hospitals have affected you. Email your story to patientcare at calnurses.org. That's patientcare at calnurses.org. A message from the California Nurses Association. Hi, I'm Pamela Fugit-Hetrick, the host of Money Moves. Cash flows and money moves, but do you find money moving out of your wallet faster than it comes in? Do you wish you had a personal money manager? Do your best Dirty Harry imitation. You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Go ahead. Make my day. Pretend that your finger is your gun. Quick draw, aim, point, and straight ahead. Notice that one finger is pointing out, but you have at least three pointing back at you. You're the best person to manage your own money. To get the tools you need for the job, listen to Money Moves Thursday night from 7 to 8 p.m. As your host, I promise that each week, Money Moves will leave you with some tips and tools to help you manage your own money. Thursday nights, 7 p.m. for Money Moves. Remember, that's Thursday nights, 7 p.m. for Money Moves.
Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is physician and former Senate Majority Leader, Mr. Bill Frist. And in the first segment, we were talking about the spread of the Ebola virus in Africa, and Mr. Frist was assuring us that Americans are fairly safe uh, now that the quarantines have been implemented abroad. Um, Now, there's talk that yet unapproved vaccines, which have uh, only been through animal trials uh, in Canada and the United States, are on their way to Africa, which uh, for me, poses a bit of a moral dilemma. I mean, should we be using vaccines which have yet to clear our regulations and that we would not allow American citizens to use? Uh, should we be exporting those to Africa? What are your thoughts on that? You know, it's a, it is a uh, unanswered um, question, almost rhetorical, but it's one for really three reasons an answer has been forced, and I think appropriately so. What what the World Health Organization did to answer this question is to bring together a group of multinational ethicists, uh, individuals who are specifically trained to weigh situations of morality, of safety, of efficacy, of of um, rightness of wrongness, and these individuals unanimously concluded for three reasons. Number one, the high number of people who have been infected by the virus, um, almost 1,900 we know have been infected. Uh, yes, and those are the only the reported cases. I, I want to make sure everybody understands those are what are reported, and reported is always a considerably smaller in nations like this. You know, very well mm-hmm. said. Uh, we do know that over a thousand people ha- have died, so that's number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, they said this Ebola is the deadliest Ebola outbreak in the history. In history, it has what is called in in um, scientific parlance or medical parlance high fatality rate. And that is, if you get Ebola with sixty percent certainty, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. And that can vary a little bit, 60 to 80% certainty. And then the, the third reason is that the traditional methods that we've used, even if they're used in this particular case, that is protective gear and masks and gloves and hand washing and tracing contacts to see what an individual, who an individual came into contact with, that's traditional treatment, and that's always worked in history, but that has failed. So for those three reasons high number, high case fatality rate, all traditional methods are failing. In that particular case, it makes sense to send vaccines, and there are over a 1,000 doses that are on their way overseas, primarily to Liberia right now, to use vaccines of which we have, as you point out, we don't know the effectiveness of them. We know in animal models they seem to work, but Mm -hmm. we don't know they've not been tested in humans. And number two, we don't know what the real side effects are going to be in humans. On the other hand, you're using these vaccines in people who have a fatality rate of anywhere from 60 to 90 percent. And therefore, in this particular case, for those three reasons, the smartest ethicists from many countries have come together and unanimously recommended, yes, ship vaccines from the United States, ship vaccines from Canada, uh, because it's in our best estimation that there'll be a much larger good than there is bad. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a clear case where darned if you do and darned if you don't. Uh, and uh, it, when, you know, I, I know that if I were over there and I were suffering from uh, this fever, uh, I'd say, give me whatever you've got. And, and you know, uh, the fact that you've animal tested and it, it and the tests have uh, produced positive results, I'll, I'll take my chances on that. Now, uh, as you point out, the traditional methods are failing us on this particular uh, strain of Ebola. And uh, two aid workers were recently have been uh, airlifted out. Uh, others are reported to uh, have also uh, fallen victim. And, uh, and so, you know, we, we do have to step up the cures. We can't uh, necessarily rely on these traditional uh, methods. And um, uh, certainly for those people who are worried that we're now engaging in predatory practices uh, relative to human trials, I think that's far from the truth. I think that you speak the truth, uh, that with such a high probability of dying, we have to work with what we have. That's right. And then the other thing to reassure people, because everybody six months from now will come back and say, was it necessary? Was it the right thing to do? 
are you sending an experimental drug to work on people of um, who are uh, desperate? Yeah, who are desperate, right? But, but I, it's important for people and your your listeners to understand that Dr. Brantley and Dr. Wrightball, the two American missionary doctors who were infected in Liberia, when they came back to the United States, they were treated with these very same vaccines. Yes, so, but you know how this goes, right? Uh, later on, the story, we, we, we are such fans of revisionist history. Later on, the story gets spun that we were taking advantage of desperate people and conducting human trials. Yes, that's and, right. And I hate how those stories get spun like that when that really is not the way that we're responding. We're responding with what we have and what we feel has a high probability of working, so much so that even these aid workers uh, were willing to accept that risk level. Yeah, and this is the exception. And this is, this is uh, historically, we've never seen an Ebola with such high fatality rate kill so many people with failure of all traditional treatment. And so this is, it fits into this sort of rare exception that, at least in my mind, as a physician who has dealt a lot in life or death from the, the, the transplant field, uh, really does make sense. And I'll say this again, just for your, for your listeners, there have been times when I've had patients very sick who've had a heart transplant, who get a viral infection uh, similar to, to, not similar to, but it, with no treatment whatsoever, mm-hmm. where I've tried to get experimental drugs. And in that particular case, I mean, I'd call, use all the pull I could trying to get everybody, but I just couldn't get them. And I couldn't get them because we do have in this country um, a Food and Drug Administration that I think is very good, gets criticized a lot, that has at its backbone the safety and efficacy of the American people or people generally, but in, in America. So we do in, in, in our country and other countries have similar programs. I don't think quite to the same standards do have programs that look at each drug and each case uh, to make sure that we do protect the American people, that the, the benefits really do weigh the cost. But this particular case, we just don't know that. And we're operating a little bit blindly, but the reasons for operating from a moral sense and an ethical sense uh, are really passing the, 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 the highest level of scrutiny. But you could understand if you have a disease which is not curable using traditional and approved forms of medicine and you know that it's fatal and you've got nothing to lose, you could understand the frustration with the FDA for not approving and allowing you to move forward with an experimental drug. I know that there are lots of families that just shake their heads and say, well, we know how this ends up if we can't get a hold of those experimental drugs. So, you know, it's it's very frustrating. On the other hand, without the FDA's protection, you are looking at potentially uh, a predatory environment where human trials uh, begin to happen, which uh, at too early a phase in the development of a drug. And so, you know, it's a fine line to walk, a very difficult call to make. And uh, boy, you know, I'm glad I don't have to make it. I guess I'll just leave it at that. Now we have to take another break. Stay right where you are. We'll be right back with more from Bill Frist. You're listening to the Costa Report. Every day our world gets more complicated. Not only is new information coming at us faster than we can manage, new regulations, technology, and the effects of globalization have made it much more difficult to succeed. That's why I wrote The Watchman's Rattle, a book that, for the first time, explains how complexity makes it hard to separate facts from fiction and eventually causes us to make important decisions based on unproven beliefs. And not just us, our leaders also fall prey to this phenomena. But here's the good news. Once you know the symptoms to watch for, you can safeguard against them. So please, go to RebeccaCosta.com. That's RebeccaCosta.com. And order your copy of The Watchman's Rattle. It only takes a few minutes and the shipping is free. That's RebeccaCosta.com. Do it now. You'll be glad you did. Care from the Heart is a local family-owned business. Hello, my name is Jackie Tucker, owner of Care from the Heart. 
Our family has provided caregiving services in our community for over 18 years. Our doors are opened like an emergency room 24-7, where a dedicated team of case managers and home care aides will serve you with respect and dignity. I'm Dr. Don Motika. I have been using Care from the Heart for my patients for many years. I'm very happy with Jackie, and more importantly, I think that she does a great job in choosing people and coordinating the services well so that my patients get what they need when they need it. No complaints ever. When you or your loved one is in need of our care, please call area code 831 476 8316. Our website is carefromtheheart.net. That's dot net. We are honored to serve you. Hi, Sam Quentin here for Sure Crafters. I'm with Big Pete of Big Pete's Treats. And Pete, tell me how you came to Sure Crafters. Well, I'm an edible cannabis confectioner, and my family business was starting to grow. We needed to design and print labels for our treats. Plus, we needed employee t-shirts, business cards, and banners to display at trade shows. We called Scott Gold at Sure Crafters, and he showed me how Sure Crafters was my one-stop shop for branding my business. I'm sure glad I did. Sure Crafters provides top-of-the-line custom screen printing, digital printing, embroidery, decals, stickers, banners, business cards, and so much more. So build your brand with Shirt Crafter, located at 111 Ingalls Street in Santa Cruz, or go to shirtcrafter.com. Give them a call at 831-423-0537. That's Shirt Crafter, 831-423-0537. Cultured whey has been prized for thousands of years, but is virtually missing in our modern diet. Beyond Organic revives a classic, introducing Suero Gold. Suero Gold is a whole food, living probiotic cultured whey beverage that can add life to any recipe or meal. Whey is a co-product of the cheese-making process, and when cultured or lacto-fermented, offers a tart, golden liquid that has been revered by the ancients. Cultured whey is abundant in electrolytes and naturally contains B vitamins, probiotics, and enzymes. Made with whey from organic, green-fed dairy cows that live a peaceful and happy existence on open pasture, they are never given antibiotics, hormones, vaccinations, or grain. Join the thousands of people who use Sweto Gold to do an amazing three-day body detoxification. These products are available at KSCO Studios and soon at Strategic KSCO partner food outlets. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, our guest today is former Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist. So moving on to uh, issues here closer to home, we're about eight months into the Affordable Care Act. And uh, while the website started out a little shaky, overall, the enrollment numbers seem to be about right and and uh, things seem to be going well. So from a physician's point of view, uh, how do you think the program is doing? That's a great, um, a great question. Um, and the answer depends on who you are. And it's interesting. First of all, as a policymaker, the legislation was not passed well. Everybody knows that it was chaotic, not just the way it was rolled out, but the way it was passed. I can say that as majority leader of the United States Senate, um, historically, legislation isn't passed that way. And that's not to be critical of any one party or another, but what it meant is that it wasn't written very well. There are a lot of inherent contradictions the, there are, um, the, the lack of clarity meant there's a lot of chaos in the law itself that has yet to be um, settled out. That's number one. Number two, the number of uninsured, remember the purpose of it was to take uh, 55 million people and get insurance, who, people who did not have insurance. If you use that as a measure, mm-hmm. and you say if there were 55 million people uninsured, and this may be, as of today, as insured 5 million people who didn't have insurance. Uh, you say, well, it's just failed uh, uh, miserably. Um, or not miserably, but it's not meeting the expectations we, we have. More people have signed up than the 5 million that I just said. 
say, 10 million, 12 million people. But of those 12 million people, 7 million already had insurance somewhere else. They just switched because of the subsidy, the government subsidy into this program. Mm -hmm. Number two, I don't think it should be judged just on that. I think it should be uh, judged in in large part, is the overall quality of health care in this country better? Is the value of health care in this country better than before the legislation? And I would answer, and again, remember, I'm from the opposite party who passed it and, and all, that the answer is is yes. We have not just the cost of the legislation, but we've had a flattening in health care spending for the first time in 40 years of this significance. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, health care spending, and that's how much you have to spend on health care overall in this country, is essentially flat for the last two years and looks like it will be for the next year. But as an individual, it depends on who you are, because if you can take advantage of the program, you are paying less for your insurance. But if you're in the middle class or the upper class, you're paying a a, a significantly more for your insurance, your private insurance, than you were two years ago. So it depends on who you are as to the overall success. So thirdly, where do we go? I've always said that that from the outset that 70% of Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act or the recent health care law is good. It's moving in the right direction. More people will have insurance. And I think that's a good thing because if you have some insurance, you get into the door, you tend to get a little bit better treatment. But that 30% of it uh, really needs to be fixed. And for for small businesses, for the people who are right in the middle class, we're having premiums go up 15, 16% this year. We've got to stop that. We've got to reverse it. Fourth, Lynn, this is the last thing I'll say, I'll be quiet, is there are ways to fix it. Well, uh, let's, let, let me ask you about those. What, what, uh, at the top of your list, how would you fix it? Uh, you know, I think it, at the federal level, um, there absolutely has to be bipartisan leadership to pass legislation that will correct the huge um, uh, mistakes that were put forward initially in the legislation. There are things that need to be fixed, like having a panel of 15 individuals in Washington who in the legislation are to essentially dictate what services are covered in Medicare. It just doesn't make sense. 15 unelected officials appointed by government officials. That sort of thing needs to be moved to the side. The reform is going to be mostly occur at the state level. Two things were done at the state level. Certain states expanded their Medicaid programs to include people under the poverty, all people under the poverty level, which is not true in many states today. Mm-hmm. And the second thing done at the state level were these state exchanges. Yes. The state exchange is, is sort of this menu of plans you choose from. Mm-hmm. So what I would do if I were a policymaker or, or a governor or somebody at the list, uh, state level is to make sure there is full transparency in pricing, full accountability put forward, so an individual in making a choice for a health care plan knows exactly what they're going to, what they're going to get, how much it's going to cost, and do that in a in a easy and fully accessible way. Well, let me ask you something about these health exchanges because I, I just came back from uh, sitting on a panel with Juan Williams um, at the Sun Life. Uh, uh, convention in Florida where we're talking about these exchanges and uh, in one case an exchange is offered I think it's either 18 or 20 choices insurance choices that just seems like that's too many I mean, people can't take a month off of work to analyze every one of these I mean most people are working two jobs trying to feed their family get their kids to college uh, they don't have time nor the expertise or education to vet these programs out and I am a big believer the more complicated you make things uh, the more opportunity to make the wrong choice that just seems obvious yes, to me and it's confusing and it's chaotic and you know it's I'm a heart and lung transplant surgeon. I've been done the stuff in government, and I love it. I study it. I spend my life doing it. I do the global health. But if you ask me to really sit down and go through my health care plan and ask me, Bill Frist, why I chose it, ask me what's really covered and what's not covered, I couldn't do it. 
I mean, I just can't do it. And, and you're you're a physician, and you're making this admission. Uh, and I'm an I'm a college educated woman. I got to tell you, I go through all the options that I have, and and my head wants to explode. Yeah. So what what happened with Medicare? So the, what you have to go back to, and I think you're right. Too much Americans want choice. They do not want something crammed down, especially if what's crammed down is determined by a bunch of bureaucrats in Washington D.C who don't really fully understand the intimacy of, of health care, of what's involved, of, of knowing who your family is and the doctors in the community. They don't want that. So they want more choice than a single-payer plan dictated, run by a bunch of people in Washington. How much choice do they want? Based on my experience, Americans, and it's exactly what you said, don't want too much choice. Well, don't give me 20 insurance plans to look at and then say, listen, if you pick the wrong one, you're accountable and responsible for it. And that's, and that's where it comes back to, to the exchanges. A good state exchange doesn't have 20 plans. It needs more than one plan because Americans want and deserve choice. And so I envision, and what I think will move as we, as we work together, is a choice uh, like a menu of five plans in easily understandable English lined up mm-hmm. in their 10 lines or horizontally they put benefits, deductible, what's excluded, so that not everybody has to understand it, just like when you buy a car. If I go buy a car or I go buy a tractor, I don't know what I'm buying really. So what I do is look in Consumer Reports and see what the best tractor is out there, and if it's good, I will trust that trusted, good housekeeping seal of approval, whoever it is. So what I think is going to happen, we'll start with some states having 18 plants. We'll call that down next year. This is why you have to have good people represented. That's why we have to participate and vote and go to elections. That you'll call that down to about five plans that are easily understandable, laid out there clearly, because you're purchasing. It's it's your money, directly or indirectly. You're purchasing something to affect the most intimate aspect of your life, and that's the health care of you or your loved one. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely right. And I think that, that right now we don't have the proper oversight at the federal level where this program was initiated in order to uh, make the process simple uh, and uh, less confusing uh, so that people and, and, and so that there's some mechanism for directing and matching the right plan to the right person. Now, we have to take another scheduled break, but stay right where you are. We'll be back after these messages from our sponsors. You're listening to the Costa Report. Now, if you've been listening to the Costa Report, you know that I'm a big fan of wines by Caraccioli Cellars. And today I'm here with Scott Caraccioli, who's one of the brains behind the most memorable wines money can buy. So I have a question for you. How did your family get into the wine business? Um, You know, in 2006, my father, his brother and uncle were really playing with the idea of planting a vineyard. And planting a vineyard turned into making a bottle, turned into making sparkling wine when um, Michelle came into the picture. So it was really kind of an organic situation, us being in agriculture in the Salinas Valley, and then the extension of that went to grapes, and here we are today. To find out more about Caraccioli Wines, visit us at www.caracciolicellars.com or stop by our tasting room in downtown Carmel, California. That's Caraccioli Cellars, C-A-R-A-C-C-I-O-L-I, Cellars, where one bottle is never enough. Do you love creating salads as much as you enjoy eating them? Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, cookbook author and culinary expert. Dole inspires fresh and wholesome dishes for any meal with their wide selection of salad blends and all-natural salad kits. From the mild and tender texture of sweet butter lettuce to the crunch of classic romaine sprinkled with colorful shredded carrots and red cabbage, Dole has over 30 salad blends to satisfy every palate. If you're looking for the ultimate in convenience, try Dole's unique salad kit combinations that include farm-fresh lettuces and vegetables, mouth-watering all-natural toppings, and specially made dressings. It's all you need to make a distinctively delicious salad. The possibilities are endless. 
Visit www.dolesalads.com for recipes and other ideas to feed your culinary imagination. Hi, Registered Pharmacist Ben Fuchs here. I've been studying healthy bodies for 35 years, and what I've got to tell you may shock and surprise you, but if you listen up, it may change your life. The symptoms of PCOS, which stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome, are caused by the many cysts which produce lots of both male and female hormones. Excessive production of female hormones are associated with bad periods, sometimes no periods, bloating, weight gain, obesity, moodiness, sluggishness, while the excessive male hormones she produces can cause oily skin, acne, sometimes hair on the chest and back, thinning hair on the head. The hormone-secreting cysts are themselves associated with insulin and blood sugar, and most PCOS PCOS patients have oftentimes undiagnosed pre-diabetic signs. That means PCOS needs to be first treated as a sugar processing problem. And secondly, PCOS patients who usually have underlying digestive problems are going to want to look here too. PCOS patients should focus especially on fat malabsorption, gallbladder and liver health issues, as well as the health of the intestine. Vitamin C is helpful for all hormone health issues, and you want to make sure you're getting fatty vitamins too, especially vitamins E and A. Lecithin granules, with fatty meals can support fat metabolism, and it wouldn't be a bad idea to finish off all meals with a little apple cider vinegar, which can stimulate the secretion of fat digestive enzymes from the pancreas. Probiotics can be helpful, as can supplemental bile salts and digestive enzymes. Think zinc important for balancing hormones, and selenium, which has a stabilizing effect on estrogen. Some women can get relief by using progesterone cream. Pharmacist Ben here urging you to go to kscohealth.com to order Beyond Tangy Tangerine, the Healthy Start Pack, and other nutritional supplements that I personally use and recommend. You can purchase these premium quality products at wholesale prices online at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. I'm the pharmacist that believes that staying healthy and strong is not only about medicine, it's about giving your body the raw materials it needs to do its work. Go to kscohealth.com. Make sure you check out the cool videos too at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa and my guest today is Bill Frist. Now, with so many stories of uh, people being able to receive care that they uh, might not otherwise have been qualified for or even have uh, gone and sought out because they were uninsured, you would think that more would be made about uh, Obamacare in the upcoming midterm elections. But, you know, uh, folks like Nancy Pelosi are saying that the Democrats are neither going to run on this nor shy away. But if it's one of the showcase pieces of legislation for uh, the Obama administration, you, you think it'd be right up there front and center, wouldn't you, Mr. Frist? Rebecca, it's Bill in the booth. I believe we've lost Mr. Frist. We'll get him back on the line momentarily. Uh, it looks like one of our technology gremlins just got in there, grabbed the line, and we lost Mr. Frist. And Rebecca, Mr. Frist is back. I'm here loud and clear. Well, I'm telling you, uh, if I was a paranoid woman, I'd think the NSA might have been tapping my phone. <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. Well, I did have a couple of calls, by the way, from the World Health Organization. I should announce this on, on air. I did have a couple of calls from Kabul and from uh, downtown Pakistan, but they were from the World Health Organization. So I should make that clarification, I think, uh, just, in, just in case, just as a little uh, insurance here. In case somebody's listening and do it live. That's right. That, that's right. Uh, I don't. I was. What, what I was asking was with with so many stories of people being able to receive a care that that were not insured before and uh, and now are uh, g- going in and getting early detection. You would think that in the midterm elections, more would be made about the um, the successes of the uh, you know whatever successes there have been of Obamacare. But uh, folks like Nancy Pelosi are saying that uh, Democrats are neither going to run on uh, Obamacare nor shy away from it. Now, my question is, if it's one of the showcase pieces of legislation uh, under the president, um, you'd think it, it might be right front and center during the midterm elections, or do I have that wrong? Yeah, no, I think it's a, a little bit different. Um, if you, The Kaiser Family Foundation does a polling on this. I'm on the board of that, but it's, it's mm-hmm. the best independent, mm-hmm. nonpartisan and the polling shows pretty clearly that that over time things haven't changed very much. Republicans.
Republicans are very much uh, against it, in large part of the way it was passed. Democrats are for it. In the middle, which is where the elections will play, more people don't like it than do like it. For good reason or bad, I'm just saying what the polls show. I see. That being the case, if I were running for elective office now, and I know that the, the, the voters that are going to decide my future, that is not, you know, not necessarily Republican or Democrat, but the people in the middle, on, on, on average don't like it, I'm not going to be out there saying I like it because they're not going to vote for me and I'm going to lose. I've wasted that time. Mm-hmm. It depends on who you are. If you're a Republican, you know most people aren't going to like it, you'll be out there bashing it. And 60% of your ads are going to be on TV saying Obamacare is a bad thing. If you're a Democrat, you're going to be very quiet about it because those people in the middle who ultimately will determine the election don't really like it. So you're going to write public opinion uh, depending on where that is. And right now it's not a a popular piece of legislation. Right. Even folks that are using it don't seem to be uh, beating the drum about it. So so I I see your point there. It, it, it will be an important issue, depending on what district you are, what state you are. It'll be the number one driving issue. I do think overall it will not determine in the aggregate the outcome of the elections or two years from now in the presidential election. Mm-hmm. Now, you are one of those uh, very exceptional leaders who decided to pursue a real job before you ran for the Senate. And you also gave your word to the voters that you would only serve two terms and then return to your own work. And, and you, uh, what makes you unusual is that you kept that promise. You did not run for a third term. You have any regrets about that? I don't know. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I, did, I did 20 years in medicine, which to me is still the greatest of all professions. Uh, the ability, uh, an opportunity to heal, to help heal, to be a vehicle for healing. Uh, and then I decided to, to, I wanted to serve America. I wanted to serve my Tennesseans and, and Americans and went in, just as you said, as a citizen legislator, one who goes to Washington to do the very best you can over 12 years. And I said 12 years. And after that, I departed. I did not run for re-election uh, and left. And now I live a, a wonderful, hopefully very productive life, addressing things like Ebola, working in Rwanda, starting companies like in the end-of-life care, some great fun things based on what I learned. Um, the citizen legislator concept is something that I would like to see more of in America. Um, I lived it. I went into it that way. I think there's huge advantage in taking people, whether they're doctors or or mechanics or farmers, whoever, to Washington for a period of time. Apply it. Be as smart as you can and work as hard as you can and then come home and live under the laws that you serve. So you set a term limit on yourself. Uh, so reading into this, I would say that you would be in favor of uh, of legal term limits. You know, it, it, I've changed over time, mm-hmm. so it's interesting. I, I started uh, 100th in seniority in the United States Senate, and I ended up being majority leader uh, uh, for all sorts of reasons, a lot of luck, a lot of, a lot of reasons. And so I ended up at the very top, uh, running that body for, for a period of time. I could not have done that, to be perfectly honest, without without calling upon people who had been in the Senate for 18 years, even only served well. And therefore, to say that you constantly have to be turning over and you lose some of the wisdom that comes with age, not everybody, and they should probably be a minority. Mm -hmm. Therefore, today, I think it's fine for the executive branch where you have a whole branch of government built around it. But in, in the legislative branch of government, where you do have the, the purse strings, where you are passing the laws of the land, that's not done by the president of the United States, to be able to have this mixture of, uh, of healthy turnover uh, with good experience leads me to say that, well, maybe not term limits for, for, for everybody. And uh, that's where I'm left. And, again, it varies on what body, whether you're at the state level or the local level, the ex- executive or legislative branch. I do think we need uh, more citizen legislators, people who come there not to be there forever, not that politics is an end of, of their, 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 their dreams and their life, therefore they want to stay there, not that they worship the position, but that they occupy that position for a period of time, doing the, the best that they can, bringing the values and experiences, and then going home and live under the laws that they pass. 
Well, I think that is well said. I think there needs to be a mix. There has to be some legacy data that transfers from human to human. But we certainly need um, people that are not trying to make politics a, a lifetime career as well so that fresh ideas and uh, and movement can occur uh, inside our nation's capital. Unfortunately, Mr. Frist, that is all the time we have left. But uh, before I do say goodbye, I'd like to thank you for your service, not only to this country, but all of humankind. Thank you, Mr. Frist. Thank you very much, Rebecca. If your station is leaving us after this first hour and you have a question or a comment to make about our interview with Bill Frist today, you can email me at RebeccaCosta.com or drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. We're pretty much all over the Internet. And in particular, I'd love to hear from you if you signed up for coverage under the Affordable Care Act and you've had a good experience with your coverage or whether you've had a negative one. Eight months into the program, has your experience been positive or negative? And if you missed the full interview with Bill Frist today, or any of our other guests, you can download previous episodes of the Costa Report from our website, Apple iTunes, Podbean, and our new YouTube channel. And while you're at our website, please take a moment to check out the new videos and articles, and in particular, the reviews of the Watchman's Rattle by Richard Branson, James Watson, Donald Trump, and others. This is the first book which explains why it is that we all feel overwhelmed by the complexity of information that we must now understand and the decisions that we must make. And more importantly, it traces the explosion in complexity to earlier civilizations, which also eventually experienced gridlock and could no longer solve their problems in spite of having the ability to. So they allowed their threats to magnify until eventually they were unstoppable. I think you'll see many parallels between the role complexity played in the collapse of earlier societies and the detrimental effect it's having on life today. My guest next week is former governor of Indiana, Mitch Daniels, who will be here to talk about the upcoming midterm elections and why space exploration must remain a priority for our country, including putting a man on Mars. Don't miss Mitch Daniels next week on the only news program which puts policy ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for another hour of Straight Talk Radio. You're listening to the Costa Report. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.